When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, football fan engagement editor at Chronicle Live. And here we are at episode 12 of our walk through the history of Newcastle United. Last week we chronicled the traumatic era of 1933 to 1939 when Newcastle United were relegated for the very first time and spent half a dozen seasons in English football's second tier before the outbreak of World War II halted the game in 1939. Today for episode 12, we're going to discuss how that period of war from 1939 to 1945, affected Newcastle United's players, staff and supporters. And joining me as ever is Newcastle United's official club historian, Paul Joannou. Paul, we're at a significant junction of the Newcastle story. It's 1939. How apparent was it during that summer that life and football was about to change significantly? Well, when United started the season, the second world conflict, was almost a certainty. Football began on the 26th of August in earnest and uh, war was declared after just three games of the new season. Uh, In fact, Ray Bowden, Newcastle's star inside forward, was was most unlucky. In the last game against Swansea Town, he scored a hat-trick as as Newcastle won 8-1 in what turned out to be his very last first-class fixture. Yet the result was crossed out of the record book when the season was abandoned as uh, Hitler's masses advanced on Europe and, and rocked the, the whole of uh, the world. Yeah, poor old Ray Bowden hitting form as World War II arrived. That is very bad timing indeed. There was a new feature actually introduced to the game for the first time in the short period of football that was played in August 1939, something we now take for granted in the modern game appeared on the shirt, didn't it, Paul? Certainly did. Um, the opening fixture was against Millwall, and it, so that, that game show, saw shirt numbering arrive for the first time uh, for all clubs. Uh, up to then, punters in the press had to guess who had the ball, and, and that could be a bit difficult if you're right at the back of the terraces of the stand. Uh, but now it was a lot easier with a large red number on the back of the shirt. There had been a few experiments with numbering before that, um, but it was now here to stay. And with it came United's now famous number nine shirt. Um, it was a local lad called Billy Hart Kens uh, who was the first to wear that iconic number nine. I should also you know, stress uh, back then it was uh, numbers one to 11 in the traditional team formation. Uh, we didn't get squad numbers for many, many years to come. So um, every, every, every team was numbered one to 11, uh, fullbacks, wing halves and uh, five forwards. Good, yeah, the OCD in me likes that and I like that it's red numbers as well the red numbers divide a few Newcastle fans but I like red numbers on the back of a black and white shirt so uh, that's a great quiz question there as well for your listener 1939 the year shirt numbers were introduced and Billy Hart Kens he had the honour of wearing the first ever number nine seen on a Newcastle shirt how did Newcastle as a club react then to the pause that came in competitive football well like every uh, club in the country professional contracts were cancelled Uh, and football entered a five-year period of wartime Britain. 
Um, Newcastle used those years well. With Stan Seymour at the helm uh, in everything they did, he found new talent. He developed them in between war headlines and military service. And by the time peace was restored in 1945, the, the Magpies were in a healthy position to move forward. Um, so it was a, as a, it was a from football from a football point of view, it was a pretty good era for Newcastle United. They used those years to rebuild the club after that awful period in the late 30s. And we spoke in episode seven when we <coughs> were joined by Dr. Alex Jackson from the National Football Museum about players and staff, past, present and future, who were involved in World War One. Can you talk us through the people associated with the club who saw action during this World War? Well, just like uh, the Great War, Newcastle players and officials were heavily involved in the conflict. And, and really, right at the very beginning, as war erupted, some ex-players were caught up in the German advance through Europe. 1920s player Curtis Booth uh, was a coach in Holland in 1940, and he was one of 12 footballers who, uh, as it was reported, caught the last boat to England as, uh, as the Germans uh, advanced. Newcastle players served in the forces home and abroad. Uh, they were involved in many of the noted engagements of the conflict, uh, yet sadly 12 died during, during the war. First teamers Stan Docking uh, and Bill Emery died. So did Ernie Hall, who was a, a fringe player. He served in the RAF and he was uh, killed on a bombing mission over Austria. Um, there were several young reserves uh, also killed, um, including Colin Seymour, the son of Stan Seymour himself. He was in the RAF. Bill Isaac and George Ledger were in the Navy um, and several other RAF members uh, were also um, unfortunately killed. Uh, Jimmy McPherson's son died, so did Willie Parker, Tucker Robinson, Jimmy Taylor, right at the end of the war in Java, and he won the Distinguished Flying Cross, uh, and Angus Taylor as, as well. He um, unfortunately died. There was one other player, uh, uh, Ralph Shields, who actually served in World War One. He was in Newcastle Reserve just before that conflict. Uh, he had actually played football um, after leaving Newcastle and did pretty well for, for Huddersfield. Uh, he emigrated to Australia, joined up again at the start of World War II and was tragically killed in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Uh, so unfortunately, there were several who didn't come back, uh, but many, many did, of course, and, and players served in some of those major battles that we all know. At Dunkirk, Billy Scott, and Doug Wright were, were on the beaches. Billy Scott was captured, prisoner of war for the whole of the period. Dougie Wright evacuated and, and later served in uh, on D-Day. Also at D-Day were Harry Ware, Jimmy Woodburn, and, and uh, as I said, Dougie Wright. Uh, all three of them were wounded in, in the invasion, which uh, sort of turned the war in 1944. Uh, we had players at the Market Garden operation at Arnhem, Harry McMenemy. He was wounded, wounded as well. Um, and in Italy at Anzio, Benny Craig and Norman Dodgkin uh, were in the services. While in, in Africa with the 8th Army, Tom Finney, who uh, was a great player after the war, he was a guest player for Newcastle, uh, served alongside Benny Craig. And in the Battle of Britain, um, future director Jimmy Rush, he was a celebrated timesider and he was a squadron leader and he, he was one of the heroes of the Battle of Britain. I mean, that's amazing to hear all the names, 12 
players didn't come back. Um, names that aren't necessarily familiar to us, and unfortunately, that's because no one got to see them play football again because they didn't return home safely. Um, were there any other personalities who we might be more familiar with who were involved in the war, Paul? Well, there was there was literally dozens of Newcastle associated players who served. Ivor Broadus was in the RAF, and, and Tom Mitchell, nineteen twenties player, also in the in the Air Force. Um, as was Jonathan Wilkinson, who played alongside uh, the likes of Huey Gallagher. He was actually posted missing in Burma, um, but later found, uh, yeah. thankfully. Uh, Stan Mortensen, another famous name who guested for Newcastle, was twice in air crashes, but survived both of them. Um, and another future director, Fenton Braithwaite, um, he was a, a, a squadron leader and a, a doctor, and he later and he became celebrated as a pioneer of plastic surgery during the Second World War. And he did much to, to help injured pilots uh, during that conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Navy, Charlie Wayman and Bobby Mitchell served on, uh, on vessels, uh, as did uh, George King, um, who was actually once torpedoed by a U-boat. And Ernie Taylor uh, served in some Marines. Two or three names which deserve a special mention. Um, Dave Hamilton was another who survived uh, the Dunkirk uh, uh, fiasco, and uh, he later joined up as a glider pilot and um, uh, served at Arnhem. And two Bolton Wanderers players who guested for Newcastle, Ray Westwood and Donald Howe, were two of several Bolton players who joined up together at the start of the war, and all of them served together at Dunkirk in, in the Eighth Army in Africa, then at Anzio, and then on the advance to Rome. So um, there were very, uh, there was there were lots and lots of stories in World War II as well. And not forgetting another World War I man, uh, William McKeague, who we mentioned a few episodes ago, who uh, as, a, as a teenager joined up and fought the Bolsheviks in, in Russia. Well, in Second World War, he became a high-ranking officer in in uh, on home service he was a deputy adjutant with a with a rank of a major so uh, he served uh, during the conflict as well yet also there's many newcastle players who who stayed at home um some famous names joe harvey who uh, was going to become one of the biggest names in newcastle's history after the war he was a sergeant major and he uh, trained many of the troops who went overseas and many stayed on essential work, of course, uh, just like uh, World War One. Jackie Milburn, Len Shackleton and Len White were all down the pits at one time or another. And in the shipyards, Albert Stubbins was a was a draftsman. Amazing. Yeah. Joe Harvey, Sergeant Major. We will learn later on that he is a, a great leader of men. And that's perhaps where he learned some of his qualities. And of course, Jackie Milburn, Len Shackleton. Len White, coal miners, very important to, to have the coal during World War Two. so they were fortunate to stay at home. What football was played in the Northeast during World War Two? Alex Jackson pointed out in our World War One episode that, that women's football was, was played a bit more during World War One and actually thrived. And also, he mentioned that during World War One, the professional players of Newcastle who remained on British soil, they would often turn out in regional games at places like Wall's End, but what was it like during World War Two, Paul? Well, it was a bit different in World War Two. Um, in, in the in the Great War, uh, Newcastle United more or less closed down, but that didn't happen in World War Two. Uh, Newcastle United continued, and regional wartime leagues were arranged, 
and the club faced uh, local sides like Gateshead and Darlington, as well as Sunderland and Borough, and, and more familiar teams for, from Yorkshire, of course, uh, like Leeds and Bradford. So, so there was a North East League and, and uh, a North West League, and there was leagues down south as well. So they continued throughout the war period. Interesting that there was still football to watch during this time. You touched on it earlier when you mentioned the name Stan Mortensen, but there were some interesting cameos for Newcastle United by some players that might be familiar to listeners, but we <coughs> don't really associate them with Newcastle United. Well, the football to, to, to help football during the war years, um, the authorities allowed um, guest players to appear for uh, clubs all over the country. So with many players either returning to their native uh, homes during the the war years or working or in the services in various training camps. Uh, there were many footballers in, in various areas and in the northeast there was absolutely dozens and dozens of them working back on Tyneside or Wearside or in the many training camps in the Thumbland and Durham. So several players uh, guested for Newcastle United. We mentioned Tom Finney. He once scored a hat-trick for Newcastle United during one of his games. Stan Mortensen was a Tynesider back at home and he played for the club. So did the great uh, Tottenham manager, Bill Nicholson. He he was uh, in County Durham training soldiers. And another Geordie lad, Jimmy Mullen, became a great Wolverhampton Wanderers player after the war. And he was, was back on Tyneside and he played for the club. Uh, there was literally dozens and dozens of them who guested for uh, Newcastle and all, all the other Northeast clubs. So watching football back then was uh, something like watching a, a celebrated international side at times. Yeah, sounds like it. There was a good crop of young players as well about to emerge at Newcastle for whom the war years, they would have been formative, I suppose, in their development as footballers. And by the time the conflict ended, many of them were probably ready for a chance in the first team. Yeah, there certainly was. Uh, there, there were many Newcastle stars to, to be tried in the first team from 1940 onwards. Uh, some of them didn't quite make it. Make it. Uh, they went off and served in the forces. Some of them stayed at home on, on home duty and, and several became post-war football's um, star players. Of course, we had got Jackie Milburn, who, who's obviously the big name, but we also had people like Bobby Corbett and Bobby Cowell, two great fullbacks, uh, Ernie Taylor, little midfielder, Charlie Crow an aggressive midfielder to, to, to break up play. Tommy Walker, a, a lovely winger. And, and the centre-forward, uh, Charlie Wayman, uh, who wasn't very tall, but he was such a uh, uh, an effective uh, leader of the attack. And how did the club fare in the regional wartime leagues? Well, early in, in the World War II, II, Castle reached the actual War Cup semi-final during season 1939-40. Apart from the regional leagues, there was a national war cup and uh, uh, that was played out every season. On that occasion, they lost to Blackburn by a, sil a single goal, but then actually nearly reached uh, what would have been another Wembley final. There were plenty of goals during football. Indeed, you know, by the bagful, there was literally, um, you could say, you could, you could quite easily watch five, six or seven goals uh, on every single uh, match. Um, and supporters saw many a goal fest. Some, uh, some of the results I've just listed here. There was 7-4 against Middlesbrough, 6-6 six, six against Gateshead, 9-0 uh, against Leeds, 9-1 against Stoke City, 8-2 against Middlesbrough, 
And believe it or not, we beaten we beat Bradford City and Middlesbrough in season 44-45 by the tune of 11 nil each. Uh, so, you know, there was goals galore and it must have been pretty good watching them at times, even though the football might not have been at the standard we would expect for normal football league games. Yeah, that 6-6 six, six v Gateshead would have been a good one to be at. Good value for money there. How many league games did they actually play then in a typical wartime league campaign? And you mentioned there was cup competitions as well. Yeah, full league and, and war cup programme existed. Uh, usually there were about 36 games a season, maybe approaching 40 at some times. Um, well, there was also a, what, what was called a Tyne Weir Tees Cup tournament for 1944-1945. United won the very first competition in April and May 1944 in a two-legged final with Darlington. That was a, a rather unusual match. It ended all square 3-3 at St James's Park. And as it was level, we didn't have penalties to, to decide the game. So what, what was arranged was a, a rather novel, what we would call today a golden goal arrangement. So play continued until the 143rd minute when Jackie Milburn won the trophy for United with the deciding goal. And had he not scored, it might have gone on and on and on. (laughs) Because actually, from what I've read, there was no conclusion um, set down to what would happen if no one scored a goal. Oh, my God. And actually, did did Jackie Milburn make his debut during this period? He did. He played, uh, he he did make his debut in the mid-war years Mm -hmm. and, and continued on. Uh, as a as a regular player um, until peacetime came along in 1945, 46, 47. Yes, we'll, we'll cover Jackie's time at the club in great detail in future episodes. What were the crowds like during the war period, Paul? Well, for many of the seasons, uh, crowds were restricted by the government um, until 1944. Gates were between sort of 10,000 and 20,000 for the bigger games, but there were a lot of crowds of three or 4,000 However, you know, that was all to change you know, after 1944. There was also two full international fixtures played at St James's Park uh, between England and Scotland, and they uh, had crowds of around about twenty to 30,000. Yeah, fair play. And obviously, British shores were heavily targeted by enemy fire during World War II. The North East wasn't exempt by any stretch of the imagination. Close to 400 people were killed between July 1940 and December 1941 during the Newcastle Blitz, which saw strategic bombing raids on the city, North Tyneside, Wearside and Teesside, all across the northeast were, were deemed important targets, specifically the bridges, the docks, Elswick Steelworks, Swan Hunters Shipyard, Vickers Armstrong Naval Yard and Walls End Slipway. Paul, I was wondering, was St James's Park ever targeted or damaged by enemy fire, to your knowledge, during this time? Well, it's very doubtful St James's Park was actually targeted. Uh, There was nothing of military importance at at the ground. Uh, They were more concentrating on on the riverside and the industries of Tyne and Weir. Uh, So uh, Gallagher was never hit by uh, wayward bombing. Yet on Weir side, uh, Roker Park was. That, uh, you know, the ground, Sunderland's ground was was hit in 1943 and it caused a bit of damage to uh, some of the buildings on uh, the Roker Park site. I see. And in terms of star players during this period, who stood out on the pitch for Newcastle? Um, well, one player stood out uh, head and shoulders above everybody else, and, and that was the country's top goal, get, goal getter during these war years, uh, Albert Stubbins. 
uh, and it was a great pity his very best years were in wartime football. He was a Wall's End lad, joined United as a youngster uh, during the 30s, made his debut for Newcastle as a, as a, as a young player. Um, and as a centre-forward, uh, his scoring was incredible during the war years. Um, in six consecutive seasons, his total goals per season were 21, 33, 42, 43, 43 and 40. And to- he, he totaled 237 goals in 217 games for Newcastle in his overall career. Uh, and he was an incredible striker, big, tall, thin lad. He had, you know, I think it was size, 11 football boots. And uh, he was nicknamed the Smiling Assassin because he always had a smile. He was a gentleman uh, on and off the field. I met him a few times after or, or many years after he stopped playing. Uh, in his later years, and he was such a gentleman uh, and a great lad to uh, actually sit down and talk about you know, his football time. Uh, and he was incredibly popular at Newcastle United. But as peace was restored, Newcastle were still in the second div- division, of course, and, and Albert wanted to get to the top before he was too old. old. He'd already lost five years of his career. Uh, so he made a big move to Liverpool for a, for a big fee of £12,500. Uh, and he went on to win the title and reach the FA Cup final. So um, he, he did reach the very top. Pity it wasn't in a black and white shirt, but he, he, he remained uh, a hugely popular figure uh, on Tyneside. Um, and he was popular with other people as well. He, he's actually featured on the cover of the Beatles' famous uh, Sergeant Pepper's uh, album, apparently a favourite of the McCartney family. Yes, amazing. Another good quiz question you've snuck in there, Paul, where uh, you yes. on that. That famous album, immortalised forever on that album. Brilliant. And great that you met him as well. That's fantastic. The um, conclusion then of, of World War Two is recorded as 2nd of September 1945 when we covered World War One in the earlier in this series. You said it was business as usual pretty swiftly after the Great War. What was it like after World War Two at Newcastle? Well, 1945-46 was the, the, the first peacetime season, but... Uh... Uh, football didn't really get back to normal till the following year. In 45-46, it was a transitional season. There was a Football League North and a Football League South with 42 match programmes, which was the normal uh, programme uh, for games back then. While as well, the FA Cup returned, uh, unusually on a home and away two-legged basis to start with. And crowds returned as well. Over 60,000 saw Newcastle's FA Cup uh, meeting with Barnsley uh, who included a, a certain George Robledo uh, in their side, who would uh, quite quickly become a favourite at St James's Park. Mm. Newcastle lost four goals to five on aggregate uh, and went out of the cup, but it was the start of uh, things getting back to normal. 1946-47 was to be normal football again, and with it came a boom at the turnstiles, and no more so than at St James's Park, uh, even for a second division club. Uh, it was to be the start of a marvellous 10 years for mo- and more for, for Magpie supporters. And, and the fans just you know, crammed back into Gallagher to see the black and whites. Good. After relegation and eight seasons of Division 2 and a World War, we need a bit of a lift. And uh, we'll get that in our next episode, episode 13, when we discuss the rebuild of the club, promotion and a 13-0 win. So that'll be coming out next Wednesday. In the meantime, if you have any 
NUFC history questions or observations or stories, we'd love to hear them. Email them to the EIBW podcast at reachplc.com. Or you can tweet me, as a couple listeners have already done that. I'm at Ketchel on Twitter. Please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast by whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media, at Chronicle on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for new episodes of Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United. We bring these out every Wednesday. And lastly, stay up to date with everything Black and White by subscribing to our daily Newcastle United newsletter. It's free. You get a morning news roundup, an evening news roundup and breaking news as and when it happens. Email directly to your, to your inbox. The link, I'll put that in the show notes. Click that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United Updates. Tick the box and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United with me, Matt Ketchell and Paul Joanne.